Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, we stand in awe. We stand amazed at your incredible grace that you would see fit to step down from the glory of heaven to rescue and redeem each one of us. Your incredible love, your incredible sacrifice. Lord, we can never truly comprehend the depth of your incredible grace. But I pray, Lord, as we turn to your word, as we read from your scriptures, that in some way that you would remove the veil, that we'd see you clearer, that we'd see with greater clarity your love, your grace, your mercy, your majesty, the plan that you have for each one of us here, that we'd be strengthened and our faith and our resolve to seek after you, to serve you, to love you with passionate hearts, with every breath that you give us. May your name be exalted, we pray. May your word accomplish all that you desire it to this morning in our hearts. We ask that in your precious name. Lord Jesus, amen. Amen. Well, we're in First Peter chapter 3. We're studying through this little book. I know it's, it's taking some time. I am thinking about whether I can get some t-shirts made up. But when we finally get to the end, I survived. First Peter, I survived. So let me know if you'd like to put in an order. But we're in a passage, and this is what I love about um, preaching through a book like this, is that you hit passages that you wouldn't normally necessarily preach on. It saves you from just always preaching on all your favorite verses. And we're talking about marriage. We opened this up last week. We're continuing this. And uh, as I said last week, you couldn't have this either better or worse timed with all that's been in our headlines about marriage. At the ABC's report and in a couple of year investigation, they said into biblical marriage and it wasn't particularly positive, their research results. And we mentioned that last week. And then all that's been in the press this last week about the Liberal Party and Will they or will they not push ahead a vote to redefine marriage in our country, in our nation? And look, let's be honest, politics in our country really needs our prayers. We don't seem to be able to serve a term with the same Prime Minister. And Liberal Party has gone and been voted in with a particular party platform. There's mutiny in the ranks. There's all sorts of... I mean, it would make a great Hollywood plot, wouldn't it, really? If it wasn't our nation's political leaders. So it's a time to pray to pray for our nation, to pray for our leaders, to pray for marriages. And we're going to do exactly that at the end. So hang around. And if nothing else, I think there's power when the people of God gather to pray. So hang in there with me to the end. We're going to do that. And if I forget, remind me. Don't let me forget the need for us all to join together and pray for some of the things happening around us. We're talking about marriage. And I just saw it because you look like you need it. I scoured the internet for some appropriate, and there's a lot of inappropriate, marriage jokes. And I did give, I gave a whole list to my wife. I said, sweetheart, would you veto these? Pick the best ones here. So the top three, here you go. Courtesy of my lovely wife for you this morning, you may notice a slightly feminine edge to them. She's picked this out, top of the list, number three, never laugh at your wife's choices. Remember, you are one of them. Not only was I concerned that that made the list, but that was there right at the top of the list. So, 
pray for us this week. <laughs> Number two, if you think women are the weaker sex, just try pulling back the blankets to your side, <laughs> especially in a cold winter. I won't ask if that's relevant to anyone else. Here you go. Number one, picked by my lovely wife for us this morning. Men, if at first you don't succeed, do it like your wife told you to. <laughs> I will not even endeavour to make any comment on that particular reference. May or may not have some applicability in our marriage. But marriage last week, we opened up this picture of a biblical view of marriage is so criticised, it's so demeaned, it's called it at best abusive and repressive, at worst a danger to society. And we studied the scriptures and hopefully, hopefully, we all came up with the same perspective, which was that not only is biblical marriage to be believed in, it's to be celebrated. It really is God's intention for our good and for his glory. It's incredible when you realize the plan and the purpose of God for marriage. But not only is the um, biblical point of view of marriage criticized, but often the operation and the outworking of a biblical marriage can also be criticized. So as I said last week, I want to look at this scripture and I want to hopefully paint a picture of what the Lord's plan for marriage actually is. It's a saying that goes like this. It says, as goes the family, so goes the church. As goes the church, so goes the nation. Or some versions say the society. No idea who first coined it. It's the internet. It was on the internet somewhere. But the reality is this. A healthy nation, whether we like it or not, is dependent upon a healthy church. It is. It really is. And a healthy church is dependent upon a healthy family, and the core of the family is God's plan for marriage. It's fascinating for me. It's like a, a living case to see the society all around us as we erode these foundations that the Lord has put in place for our good, for the good of society. And it's nothing different that we haven't seen throughout history. As society goes a certain direction, we don't need God. We're moving away from anything religious. We're eroding the foundations. And then it literally opens the floodgates, or as someone said to me after the first service, the mud gates at times. Anything goes, doesn't it? And we see that all around us. I don't know how anybody could think some of the things that we're seeing, just the, the immorality and not only in our schools and our young people with media and all the issues with technology and sexuality, but teacher and student relations. I mean, it, it's literally like the mud gates have been opened. And the one thing that history teaches, here's another cliche famous saying, the one thing we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. The more we turn away from God, the more society goes in one direction. And it takes something to shake us up to get us back to a biblical worldview. Fascinating as well, I'll mention this and then we'll get into the passage of promise, that not only is it uh, all of the, the redefinitions of what God has set up as good that um, happen in the name of tolerance, but it's then also a removal of blatant foundational truths. For example, in our own nation, the last few weeks, you probably saw this headline, there is a bill that's been debated, is my understanding, by the Queensland government to ban the name of Jesus from all schools, but right the way from primary school, 
from being mentioned. Public school systems in Queensland, no Christmas cards, that was a big thing, no mention of the name of Jesus. Now, there's no other policy, is there, to ban the name of Muhammad or any New Age philosophy. And I think it shows us so clearly two things. Paul says to the Ephesians, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the spiritual powers and authorities behind them. And it's no different than we see throughout Scripture, throughout history. It is this attempt by the enemy to undermine the plan, the purpose for marriage. The other thing that I take courage from is it's very obvious in the enemy's eyes that what he needs to do is remove Jesus. Nothing else is being attacked because nothing else holds the power that the gospel does to set sinners free, to save, to redeem, to rescue. We have the glorious gospel which alone shines as light and hope in the midst of the darkness. That's another sermon. Be careful, otherwise we'll begin preaching that one. All of that to say this, there is a greater mission and urgency than ever before as we look around, as we live our lives, to let our marriages, let our, every aspect of our lives, our singleness, reflect the glory of God and shine as a light and a witness to His plan and purpose in the midst of the darkness. And I would make this statement too. You know, if Christians cannot model healthy marriages and families, then who can? See, not only do we have the biblical precedent, this institution established by God and himself, we have the example of Jesus. We looked at that a few weeks ago. We have the power of his Holy Spirit helping us to love sacrificially, to uphold what is right, to live not according to our flesh, but according to the power of his Spirit at work in our hearts and our lives. Unfortunately, that's not always the case in the church, is it? And so that's what I want to exhort, that's what I want to encourage, that's what I want to proclaim to us, that marriages are worth fighting for, praying for, seeking the Lord for, asking that the glory of God would be reflected in our marriages, the way we relate to each other, the way we function as husbands and wives. So that's the mission this morning. And before we get there, let me say really quickly, I know that not everybody here is married. I want to encourage you, if you're single here, there is a plan that God has for singleness. Don't lose hope that God one day will bring your perfect husband or wife into your life. But Paul goes as far as to call his singleness a gift. Now, I've not yet had any single person come to me and say, I'm so grateful for the gift that God has given me of my singleness. I've had a few married people come to me and say, it'd be great if God would give me a gift of singleness. That's another message. But there is a call. Paul says it very clearly. He says, there's things you can do. There's ways you can serve, the God, serve God, serve the Lord, accomplish his purposes and plans as a single person that you actually cannot do as a married person. So I'm not at all trying to say you have to be married to live for the glory of God. You can do it just as well in your lives as a single person while still hanging on to, holding on to the plan, the purpose, the good that God has for you. Hopefully one day you desire a good thing, Scripture say, if you desire a husband or wife in your marriage. I also want to say this. I know that there's people in our church, even this year, who have experienced brokenness, hurt, even abuse in marriage. And as we talk about God's purpose and His plan, I don't want there to be any sense of condemnation, of guilt, or of shame. I would say don't let the brokenness 
of yesterday rob you of his plan and promises for tomorrow. Remember that he is a healer, he is a restorer, he's the redeemer. Let the grace of God work in your life. Let hope, hope rise. And even in the midst of your brokenness, allow the glory of God to shine brightly. So let's have a look at this picture. If you're there, First Peter chapter 3, we read the whole passage last week, and we really only have the time to look at a couple of things. There's some instructions to wives. There's some instructions to husbands. The wives get a long list. You'll notice the husbands get one thing. It's probably the Lord's grace, isn't it? He's saying, Peter, just give them just one thing. Keep it really simple. Give them one thing and see if they can do that really well. So let's look at that first. Simplest to explain, but probably, if we're honest, the hardest to live out. Verse 7, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman, underline honor, as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you. That literally says, in the original language, co-heirs, exactly equal. They're co-heirs with you of the grace of life. And then this very uncomfortable phrase at the end here, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So what's the Lord saying? Remember this word for honor? We've talked about this in the preceding chapter where uh, Peter encourages us to honor authorities in our lives right the way from the emperor to the workplace to slaves and masters, to every other relationship, submission and honor, continuing themes, wrestling with this grace of God that he's set us free, this radical freedom, but there's still authority, honoring our parents, honoring authorities. There's this tension that we walk out. And it's exactly the same, I believe, in marriages, and I'll explain why in a moment. But for the men, he's saying honor. That word for honor means to give appropriate weight to something. The picture is, in the times which this was written, if you were to value something, you'd measure it on the scales with an amount of gold or talents. And that was the weight, the value, the worth that was attributed to an object. So he's saying, give to your wife all that she deserves. What does she deserve as your co-heir? She deserves everything. She's your equal. We looked at it last week. Two become one. Paul goes as far as to say, loving your wife is like loving yourself. It's the one invitation you have in the Bible to be self-loving. We won't go there. He's literally saying, love your wife with a passion, with a purpose, in a self-sacrificing, Jesus-like way. Love like Jesus was the goal. And in fact, he goes on to say, remembering that your prayers will be hindered. Your prayers, the effectiveness of your walk with the Lord is dependent upon your ability to really love your wife and your family like Jesus would have you do. For the glory of God, love her as she deserves to be loved and as Christ has loved you. That's really it. That's the heart of what the Lord says to men. So let's look at, what the, at the heart of what the Lord through the Apostle Peter says to women. Let's read the controversial verse. Are we ready? Here it is. Everyone's favorite word. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And all the men didn't dare say a thing. They hung their heads down and this is awkward. Let's move on. Let's wrestle with this. Let's not move on at all. There's a wonderful picture here, I believe, for us to see. But let's make a few clarifications. First of all, let's acknowledge that there are loaded words in Scripture. In fact, I was talking to someone this week about marriage 
And this is a, a lady who has two adult kids who are both married with their own children. And she said, it's interesting, I've noticed in my kids, they're both married, but they've said to me they both prefer to use the word partner. This is my partner, this is my partner, both ways, rather than using the words wife and husband. Because to them and in their eyes, the words wife and husband were actually loaded words. That there was this negative connotation with them. I thought, I can see that. I've never really, you know gone for this word of partner, but I can see exactly what they're saying. Whereas for me, I'm the opposite because the word wife, we've been married 13 years, my wife and I, and it's always held such a special significance. I shared last week about how we got married. I got saved in my late teens here in this church and then got married in my early 20s, working in a secular world place, a secular workplace and endured all sorts of ridicule. It was all in jest, but people were like, why would you get married? Why would you tie yourself down? You're so young. What are you thinking? And so it was with great pride that I would say, this is my wife. Even when we were engaged, I said, this is my fiance. And it just held such weight for me because I was saying in the midst of that environment, this is not just a casual relationship. It's not just another you know, fling, and I'd had relationships in the past. I said, no, this is my covenantal commitment. This is my decision to love this woman at the expense of all that I am, to lay down my life for her, that she'd be loved and valued till death we depart. For all of my days, as long as I have breath in my lungs, I'm committing myself to do everything I can to love this woman. And so that was what the word wife meant to me. And so it's interesting how some words can have all these negative connotations, and yet they can also have such positive connotations. We're all getting quiet here. Don't worry. Don't worry. Concentrating. Good. So it's the same with this word for submission. And remembering that we've really seen already in this passage a picture and a reality, as Peter has put it, Remember, husbands, that you're co-heirs. So there's this picture of equality. And yet there is this picture here that there's something unique about this husband and wife relationship that's different between the two parties. I would phrase it this way. What do we see in this passage? We see a celebration of a reality of a marriage that is both perfectly equal and yet perfectly unique. Perfectly equal and yet perfectly unique. Let me explain what I, what I mean. And we're just going to have to delve a little bit theologically. Don't fall asleep when you hear that word. Hang in there with me. There's two groups of thought when it comes to the teaching in Scripture concerning men and women. One camp falls under the banner of the egalitarians and another falls under the banner of the complementarians. Don't worry too much about those terms, but let me give you a brief view of what's good and what can be bad if taken to the extreme. The great things about the egalitarians is that they really celebrate this equal nature, this unique creation in the eyes of God that two have become one, co-heirs for the purpose and the glory of God to see his will unfold. The problem is, the bad, if you like, is when this view is taken to the extreme, there is no differential between male and female. And in fact, that's how we've got ourselves into a bit of a bind in society where we didn't mention it this morning, but with this same school policy, not only are we teaching that there's no distinction between male and female, we're saying, well, male and female doesn't exist. They literally teach, this is gender theory, 
Let me open your eyes. Gender theory says that there is no male and female. It's just something that's written on your birth certificate. And in fact, there are 63 different identifiers that you could fall under. It's no longer male and female, 63 of them. So that's almost like the extreme of the view, isn't it? There's, there is no difference. We're just whatever we like. And you don't even have to be one of the 63. You can just be gender fluid, which means you just sort of pick and choose depending on the weather. The reality is, hopefully, we can see that there are differences between men and women. And don't worry, we're not going to go into a biology lesson. But the reality is we have been made with some differences, yes? For example, men will not be having children, bearing children, anytime soon. And I've got to say, as a father of four, that is something that I'm very thankful about. Is there any other men who will say amen to that? I greatly admire my wife for bringing four young ones into the world, but I am very thankful that there are some differences between men and women. We looked at Genesis chapter 2 last week, where God creates woman, and he intentionally creates her different. Remembering that he says, male and female, they were created in the image of God. They're both image bearers. They're both reflecting the nature of God, but they're totally perfect, but also totally unique. Adam doesn't open his eyes and say, oh, look, he's cloned me. There he is. He's exactly like me. He says, no, this is woman. She's perfectly a reflection of God, but perfectly unique in her own right. Okay, so that's the egalitarians, the good, possibly the bad, the complementarians. What they do is they maintain the full beauty of biblical masculinity and femininity. They do. It's wonderful. It's a glorious picture. The problem is that if this is taken to the extreme, and I've seen this so often, all you end up with is one big list. Here's all the roles in a marriage that a man can do. Here's all the things that a female can do. And for example, I found in my marriage that things change. So one thing that's commonly put there is only men can deal with finances. Well, we started our marriage, my wife and I, I'm looking over there, but she's actually not here, in here this morning out with the kids. Oh, yes, she is. Hey, sweetheart. Let's move on very quickly. Um, where was I? Distracted by my wife and how beautiful she is, and she's just looking lovely this morning. Okay, got out. Um, I have forgotten where I was. Finances, yes, of course. So in our marriage, when we first got married, I have a financial background, chartered accountant before I went into ministry, so I dealt with the finances. I paid all the bills, I looked after things. And then as we had kids and my wife had a bit more free time at home in the midst of everything that goes on with kids, she took over the finances. And so it's more her role in our marriage to look after the finances, to pay the bills. I get my weekly allowance. I try to behave and all those sort of things. Here's the greatest problem I think about lists is that once we go down that prescriptive formula, we totally miss the point because this picture is not about what we do or don't do in a marriage. It's about the heart with which we do everything. It's a motivation, not a specific action reality. Okay, we've got to really move on. So I want us to see... Oh, sorry, so I was going to say, so which one are we? I know you all want to know. Are we egalitarians? Are we complementarians? Should we take a vote? How do we decide? Well, I'm not going to give you the answer. That's your mission. Study Scripture. I want to spur you on to find out for yourself. Study the Scriptures, see what you think, and then we'll have an exam at the end of the month and see where we land. What I do want to do this morning is I want to celebrate both of these two realities that you see so clearly here, what I've called this reality that we're perfectly equal, but we're perfectly unique. Perfectly equal, perfectly unique, okay? 
Let's go there. Perfectly equal. And this is so important because so often a verse like this, wives be subject to your, your husbands, is used as evidence that Christianity promotes oppression of women. It is. I've heard it used in that way. I'm sure you have too. Whereas in reality, the exact opposite is true. The ultimate liberator of women was Jesus and the gospel that he preached. Many historians, scholars have made suggestions along these sort of lines that the gospel and Jesus has done far more to promote the value, the importance, and the inherent dignity for women than any other worldview or philosophy. We're going to look at just how controversial this term co-heirs is. And you're only going to see that if you understand the cultural setting in which these words were spoken. See, in the Greco-Roman culture that was all around, a woman was not allowed to leave the house without a husband or an escort. A wife was not permitted to eat or interact with male guests in her husband's home. A wife was under the absolute control of her husband who had ownership of her and all her possessions. He could divorce her if she merely disobeyed his commands. She literally was a possession that had few, if any, rights. Now, the Jewish culture of the time was at least as bad, if not worse. It's said that the rabbis stood every morning with their morning prayers. And every morning they gave thanks. They said, Lord, I thank you that I was not born a Gentile and a woman. That was their daily prayer. And there wasn't much different in their eyes between the two. The oral rabbinic tradition of the time was full of statements such as, he who talks with a woman in public commits evil, let the words of the law or the Torah be burned rather than taught to woman, and on goes the scenario. I could give you other quotes that would be far more unedifying, but we'll move on. The point I want to make is, into that scene and scenario comes Jesus. Comes Jesus. And he was radical in so many ways. But let's just look at how he treated women. All three of the synoptic gospels note that women follow Jesus. Forbidden in those times. In fact, Jesus, John's gospel, goes out of his way to find not only a woman, but a Samaritan woman to prophesy over her, to lead her into salvation. And she becomes the catalyst for the whole town to experience the salvation that he brought. He taught women, he shared meals with women, he fellowshiped with them, he healed them, he prophesied over them. The first people Jesus chose to appear to after his resurrection were women. Were women. The amazing thing about that is he then instructs them to tell his disciples that he was alive. This is in a culture where a woman's testimony was worthless because she was considered worthless. You see, the point is that Jesus elevated the value of women beyond anything the world had seen up until that point. And Peter reflects that. If you read on, we don't have time to develop it this morning, but he'll say, remember women that your, your value is not just your external appearance. The only asset women had really in that culture was how they looked. He said, no, no, you have inherent worth. You're beautiful on the inside. He says, don't just focus on that. Focus on this because you now have inherent worth and dignity in the eyes of your heavenly Father. A true proclamation of the gospel, I would suggest, should always see women feeling every bit as loved, empowered, and equal as co-heirs, co-partners on a mission to proclaim to a world the goodness and grace and purpose and plans of God. A true proclamation of the gospel. And yet, we don't just stop with one side of the equation, do we? Perfectly equal. Have we grabbed that? I hope we've grasped that. And yet, we're also perfectly unique. 
I know I'm rushing through, but I want us to grab this. Remembering this word for submission, and I like this picture, even in a marriage, it's a picture of a, a, tr- a group of uh, Roman troops, remembering that they conquered the world, not really because of their wisdom and might, but because of their order and precision. They knew that they had to be in alignment with each other. And that's a little bit the way a marriage works. It's this mighty weapon in the hands of God to accomplish good for his glory. If we can get this picture, if we can get this picture, that there is a godly authority in a marriage. Now, even I know the word authority can be loaded, but remember that we've looked at this word for authority and the importance for us to recognize authority. Authority is parents to raise our kids. We have an authority, authority in the land, even when there's ungodly leaders that we need to, as Christians, submit to and obey where we can, not to be taken to the extreme, of course. And I would suggest this, it is exactly the same authority that exists for men to lead in their homes. Remembering, of course, two realities, that so often authority is abused. We can acknowledge that. And authority is not to be used as something to gain notoriety and to cause people to submit. Authority is to be used in a biblical model to serve. Let me give you an example just from the church here. Very quickly. You know, there is an authority as pastors. And although over the past year when our senior pastor, Peter Thompson, retired, there was not a lot of difference in my physical role there was something that both my wife and I noticed, and it was this sense of a burden for a people. The very first week after we'd had a service, and there was, if you like, that mantle of leadership that came, my wife woke up one morning, I had to be careful what I said, but I, I said something along the lines of, sweetheart, you're not looking as radiantly beautiful as you are every morning. Did you sleep okay? And she said, no. She said, it's funny, but you know, I went to bed and I just had this burden to pray. I had this burden, this group of people I knew I had to pray and the Lord just would not let me go to sleep until I'd accomplished what I knew needed to be accomplished in prayer. And interestingly enough, I said, oh, that's, that's, wow, okay. I went to work that next morning and on the answering service, before I'd done anything else, was a message from these exact people saying, help, we're in crisis and we need your prayer. You see, there is, whether we recognize it or not, there is this flow of authority, whether it's in the church whether it's in the nation, whether it's between slaves and... We talked about all these different contexts, but there is in a marriage as well. There is an authority for men to lead in their homes, and it's authority that I take seriously. And, you know, we do in our marriage, let me share from that for a moment, we've always had more of a traditional adjustment of of roles, but this is something beyond roles. Like, I, I love to open the door for my wife, and I love to do nice things. I know when we were dating, I refused to ever let her pay which in today's society would be completely chauvinistic. Understand that. And even when we got married, she's like, oh, you don't have to always pay, you know, like the money's coming out of the same place now. I said, no, there's just something in me that that wants to do that. But it's more than just the roles that we have within the marriage. It's this authority to lead our families, authority to serve our wives, this gatekeeper ability we have to guard what God has given us in our lives marriages. And I'm skipping over this, but let me just try and make a couple more points and then land this somewhere, hopefully. What I'm trying to suggest is that this is God's 
best for us. In a home where the husband leads like Christ and a wife responds like the bride of Christ, there is a harmony and a perfect, equal, perfectly unique mutuality that is more beautiful and more satisfying than any pattern of marriage created by man. There is no human relationship that matches the beauty and the power of this, this divine dance that's Christ-centered, Christ-focused, and Christ-exalting. That's his wonderful picture for marriage. It's gloriously good. It's not oppressive and controlling. But let's just recognize as well that none of us are perfect. None of us are like Jesus, although we try to be. We make mistakes. And there is, if you like, an acceptance of that in the next verse, as Peter says, and I know, women, that's the picture, but the reality is that some of your husbands don't even know Jesus. How can they lead like Jesus when they don't even know him? So there is this reality that there's the perfect plan of God, and yet it's not going to be perfect, although we strive for it in our understanding. But we don't give up on that. We strive for that. It's not going to be easy. It is going to be hard work at times. So I'll leave you with this exhortation, bring it to a close here. Men, I would stir your hearts to take seriously the authority you have to love and to lead and to serve your families, your wives and children if you have them. Lead like your marriage depended upon it, because it does. For the women, I would say this, if you want a man who will love and lead like Christ, even if he doesn't know Jesus, here's the greatest key that I can give you. Stop telling your husband everything that he's not, everything that he's not doing, and become your husband's greatest encourager. One of the greatest gifts my wife has ever given to me, and there's been many of them, but early on in our marriage, and I don't have time to unpack the whole story, but she made this declaration, and to her credit, she stuck to it. She said, I want to become your greatest encourager. And she has. And I asked her as I was preparing this, um, this talk, I said to her, sweetheart, I want you to tell me honestly, I know that we've had mistakes, we don't have the perfect marriage, and you know, we've, we've tried to, to live a godly marriage as best we can. I said, have ever you felt that I've led you in a, in a wrong way, in a harsh way, um, and acknowledging that I have made faults? And she said this, and it just blessed my heart, and I'll share it with you. She said, you know what? I acknowledge that you're not perfect. Thank you, sweetheart. But she said, the greatest gift that you've given to this family and the thing that I pray most for our girls, we've got four girls, above anything else, I say, God, would you give them a man who loves them and leads them like you lead our family? Become your husband's greatest encourager. Become his greatest fan, his greatest source of encouragement and watch the way that transforms your marriage. I could give you many other tips, but that's right up there at the top. So this is my desire that our marriages, our singleness, even our past brokenness would be so redeemed and drenched with the grace of God that more and more, moment by moment, decision by decision, we would reflect the glory of God in a darkened world that so desperately needs to see His grace at work here. I want to encourage us to take this seriously, not just in our marriages, for those who aren't married, but to pray for marriages. And as I said, I want to conclude. I'm sorry I've gone over time. If you need to go, you can. But I want us to stand. And we're going to pray, not only for our marriages in this church, but we've got a lot of things, as I said, happening this week. 
I want us to pray for marriages, but I want us to pray for marriage in general. I want to pray for righteousness to be uh, exalted in the houses of parliament, that the Lord would preserve the institution in our marriage. I want to pray for us, like pray for marriage like our nation depended on it, because I've said already, it does. It really does. And this is not about me praying. Often I get up and say a nice prayer, and then we all go home. This is about us as a people entering in, praying for marriage. So if you're near someone that you're friendly enough with, or you want to be friendly enough with, why don't you grab their hand? We're joined together in that way. Sometimes that's just a a physical way of grabbing someone's hand and say, yeah, we're in this together. Because we really are. We're in this together. And I want you to begin to pray. Off you go. Pray for marriages. If you're single, pray for the marriage. If you're married, pray for the singles. Pray for our parliament house. Pray for marriage in our nation. Pray for the politicians as they meet this week. Just pray. Just pray. Lord, we pray. We thank you that you're a God who hears our prayers. And we pray bold prayers of faith. We pray that you'd strengthen marriages, even marriages where nearly all hope is gone. Thank you that you're a redeemer, Lord, that you are the restorer. And I pray for restoration in marriages. Lord, I pray for men who would stand up and boldly lead like you led Jesus with a a selfless love, loving their wives and their families. Lord, I, I pray for healthy marriages, marriages that would testify to your grace. Pray for our politicians, Lord, for our nation as this ongoing debate continues, Lord. I pray that somehow you'd work things together for your good, that righteousness would prevail in the midst of our land. Lord, we pray that you would show not only us us in this room, but Lord, that, that you'd show us as a nation the value, the purpose for our good and for your glory of marriage. We pray that. Let's keep going just for a moment longer. Just pray. Make us a praying people, Lord Jesus. And today we stand together to pray for marriage. In this nation, we pray for our own marriages. We pray for the single people, Lord, that they'd serve you with a passion, with a purpose, and see their singleness as a gift to honor you until the day that you bring someone into their lives. And we pray, Lord, that we would just continue to be a people who live for your glory. What a glorious call we have, Lord, to shine as lights in a world that sometimes seems to be very quickly darkening. Let your glory shine. Arise and shine, we say. Arise and shine. Thank you that you hear our praise, God. We pray these things in your name. Thank you, Jesus.